time for the 78th QuackCast. This one is called Random Flu Thoughts. The references for this are over at sciencebasedmedicine.org. I normally write these podcasts on the weekend. However, I have been ill this week. Headache, myalgias, painful cough, but only mildly toxic. The worst part is the interferon-induced brain fog. My thoughts flow with all the speed of pudding, and I was not appreciably better as the week progressed. Although, no cracks about how you can't tell any difference over my baseline podcasts. I doubt the cause of my symptoms is influenza. According to the CD site and Google Flu Trends, there is little influenza activity in the United States at the moment. For the record, this is being recorded on October 12th, 2011. And so, it's probably one of the innumerable viruses that can cause a flu-like illness. I am not ill enough to think I have influenza, although I could be having a modified course since I was vaccinated a month ago. Of course, the doctor who treats herself has a fool for a patient and an idiot for a doctor. Flu season approaches, so from my interferon-addled brains, some flu thoughts. First, flu vaccine efficacy. The flu vaccine has a bad reputation, in part because it is not the best of our vaccines for preventing illness, and those who need a vaccination the most are the least likely to respond. Still, I was happy to see the Lancet meta-analysis this month on the efficacy of the flu vaccine, although it breaks no new ground. It is a nice paper in that they only included studies where influenza was confirmed by culture or real-time polymerase chain reaction. They did not use the clinical diagnosis of flu, or as some studies include patients with a flu-like illness. They found that the flu vaccine provides moderate protection against virologically confirmed influenza. Not a big surprise, somewhere on order of 70% of the time you will prevent influenza if you get the vaccine. As they note, evidence for protection in adults age 65 or older is lacking. This seems to be on an order of efficacy with seatbelts. Seatbelts decrease death by 70% and injuries by 40%. Neither the flu vaccine nor the seatbelt is perfect, but both are better than no intervention at all. The largest problem with the vaccine is the difficulty in choosing the correct strains to put in the vaccine every year. If the JREF ever has a million-dollar winner, I hope the new millionaire will use their powers for good and predict the upcoming year's influenza strains. A universal flu vaccine. There is ongoing work to improve the flu vaccine, which, like a good five-cent cigar or a chicken in every pot, is what we really need. The problem with influenza is that it mutates. In the argo of the field, it has antigenic drift, so that the organism at the end of the flu season does not antigenically resemble the strain at the beginning of the flu season, and it also can occur antigenic shift, where there is a whole new strain unknown to the world, as happened with H1N1. There are sections of the virus that do not mutate, regions of protein that are highly conserved, and if those proteins could be isolated, perhaps there could be a universal flu vaccine. 
and someone is on track to do just that. Quote, to answer the question, Corti et al. screened 104,000 peripheral blood plasma cells from eight recently infected or vaccinated, note the word vaccinated donors, for antibodies that recognize each of three diverse influenza strains, H1N1, H5N1, and H7N7. From one donor, they isolated four plasma cells that produced an identical antibody, which they called FI6. This antibody binds to all 16 hemagglutin subtypes, neutralizes infection, and protects mice and ferrets from lethal injection. It's important to, by the way, protect ferrets. The most broadly reactive antibodies that had been previously discovered recognized either one group of hemagglutinin subtypes or the other, highlighting how remarkable FI6 is in its ability to target the gamut of influenza types, unquote. So they figured out a part of the influenza virus that is universal to all influenzae. And if we could get humans to develop an antibody against it, you could have a universal flu vaccine. Now that was a lot of work. But now that they have discovered the key to neutralizing all influenza, the challenge is to develop a vaccine that will promote a reaction to that specific antigenic site. And voila, you can prevent all influenza forever. I sure hope we see this in my lifetime. It explains why, if there's a poor match between the vaccine and circulating influenza, there is still efficacy. The patients, perhaps, are developing antibody to a conserved site on the influenza rather than against specific antigens on this year's strain. The lucky few will make an antibody to all conserved areas to common to the viruses and develop antibody in a mismatch year. Vaccine response is always more subtle than a one-antigen, one-antibody response. I do have to comment that it really surprises me that this advance is coming from basic science work on the immunology of influenza. I would have anticipated this kind of breakthrough would have come from the NCAAM, which has been on the cutting edge of improving patient care and quality initiatives like, um, well... And I suppose my influenza brain fog is preventing me from recalling the advances from the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. I mean, they have been at the forefront of improving patient care, right? Right. Flu and pregnancy. There are people who have a marked increased risk of dying from influenza, including the obese and pregnant women. Fortunately, not pregnant men. I hasten to add, living in Oregon, where we have the pregnant male. 1% of the population at any given time is pregnant, but in 2009, pregnancy accounted for 5% of H1N1 deaths. It is difficult to convince pregnant women to get the vaccine, since people have an understandable fear of anything that could adversely affect the pregnancy. The data suggests that not only is the vaccine safe in pregnancy, But maternal vaccination protects the child from subsequent influenza. There is no data to suggest the flu vaccine increases the risk of miscarriage. And some studies suggest that influenza is associated with premature delivery. The effect of influenza infections on pregnancy outcomes has had very little evaluation. 
There is, however, a fascinating epidemiological study this month in the Journal of Infectious Diseases on the 1919 pandemic that suggested that during the pandemic, about 1 in 10 pregnant women had a first trimester miscarriage directly due to influenza. Quote, documented an unusual 5 to 15% decline in natality with a trough 6.1 to 6.8 months after the peak of the severe autumn 1918 pandemic wave in several Scandahuvian countries and the United States. On average, 2.2 per 100,000 persons were missing during spring 1919, corresponding to an excess of approximately 1 in 10 pregnant women infected with influenza during their first trimester, having miscarried in the autumn of 1918. We argue that the most parsimonious explanation for this unusual and temporal birth depression is substantial pregnancy losses following influenza infection in autumn 1918 among women who were in their first trimester of pregnancy. Now, whether prevention of the influenza with vaccination would prevent miscarriage is unknown, but there is a strong biologic plausibility to suggest that it would and it could. Vaccination benefits often extend beyond the simple concept of one vaccine preventing or ameliorating one infection. They can have multiple positive consequences, such as not having an infection, which then would lead to avoiding of a miscarriage or not having a heart attack. A Moral Imperative I am an infectious disease blogger over at Medscape. I write a little blog entry more or less every other day. And every October, I publish a deliberately obnoxious essay on the flu vaccine. It's called A Budget of Dumbasses and lists the 13 reasons why, if you are a healthcare provider, you are a dumbass if you do not get the flu vaccine. The essay is specifically addressed to fellow healthcare workers, HCWs, and does somewhat actually come from the heart. I really think that if you are a healthcare provider and you do not maximally protect your patient, you're a dumbass. Now, here's my opinion with a little data sprinkled in. Patients in the hospital are particularly vulnerable. They are a population at risk for infection and they are at risk for getting infection from their healthcare providers. About one in five cases of influenza are subclinical, so an asymptomatic person could bring flu into the hospital. Hospitalized patients are more susceptible to acquiring influenza from healthcare workers. And in one study out of England, 20% of patients who developed influenza from their healthcare worker died of flu. As healthcare workers, it is our responsibility to our patients to maximize their safety when under our care. While not perfect, the influenza vaccine is a reasonable intervention to prevent the spread of flu from the healthcare worker to the patient. Since healthcare workers already have access to the world's literature and the best minds in medicine, if healthcare workers use any of the standard excuses to avoid the flu vaccine and increase the risk to their patients, they are, well, a dumbass. There was a program a few years back to try and increase hand hygiene rates in the hospitals by enlisting patients' help. It was okay to ask, we told our patients, if your healthcare worker had washed their hands. I thought from the beginning the idea was bankrupt. And really, would anyone fly on an airplane where it was okay to ask if the wheels were down upon landing? 
I took an informal poll of patients on a medical unit, and it was unanimous. Everyone understood what it's okay to ask referred to, and not a one would ever ask their doctor or nurse if they had washed their hands for fear of making them angry. And really, who wants to risk pissing off the person responsible for giving you your morphine? Be that as it may, I would suggest that during flu season, if you or someone you love, or even if someone you don't care for very much, is in the hospital, ask if the providers have been vaccinated against the flu. Remember that being in the hospital probably means you are one of the groups unlikely to benefit from flu vaccination, and your best protection from influenza is to not acquire it from others, like your nurse or your doctor or your respiratory therapist. If your healthcare provider has not received the vaccine, ask for a new provider, or at a minimum, request that they wear a mask when involved with your care. Now, I know it will never happen, but really, there is a lot to be said for public pressure to alter behavior. I have been half thinking about starting a website to promote the idea, demand your healthcare provider has been flu vaccinated, but I haven't yet had the time. If you would like to run with it, go ahead. Dumb associations. While a blog aimed at medical providers, Medscape apparently has a fair number of Dunning-Kruger amateurs who have taken offense at my suggestion that the vaccine is a good thing for healthcare providers and their excuses for avoiding vaccinations are often not grounded in reality. Again, the blog is not directed towards patients, but healthcare workers. And since comments are anonymous, I really have no way of knowing who is commenting. When you read the comments, there are two broad themes as to why people refuse the vaccine. One is straight from Bizarro World. There is a cabal of government, big pharma, and doctors whose sole purpose in giving the vaccine is to line the pockets of big pharma and keep people ill. This is a delusional state, so at odds with reality, and evidently so common, I am surprised there is not a DSM entry for the disorder and there are no clinical descriptions of the phenomenon. Most articles that address vaccine refusal have similar reasons. People fear needles. They fear getting sick from the vaccine. They think the vaccine is not effective. But they don't mention this paranoid medical-industrial conspiracy delusion that seems to be at the heart of a vocal subset of vaccine refusers and alternative medicine proponents. Now, I don't make dime one from giving the flu vaccine or promoting the flu vaccine. Promoting vaccination, like much of my professional life, is actually counterproductive to making money. I make money and can prescribe with abandon to line the pockets of my corporate masters only when patients get the flu, only when patients get sick, at least in the other bizarro world where people have health insurance. Not always my world. But the last thing I would want to do financially, or the hospital would want to do financially, is prevent influenza. Association is not causation. The other theme that you see on Medscape is that they, or someone they know, had a vaccine and shortly thereafter had some adverse reaction that they attribute to the vaccine. Like the paranoid conspirators, the idea that the vaccine caused the subsequent illness is not amenable to logical refutation. 
It is a motto in the skeptical world that association is not causation, but it is a concept that is paid little heed in reality. Humans underestimate the role of randomness in their life, and I recommend The Drunkard's Walk is an excellent book on the topic. The author's website is but ugly. Don't let that sway you. You also have to know the background rate of events to know if there is an increased risk associated with a vaccine as a hint that a vaccine is potentially causative. Things happen for no good reason. For example, on the basis of reviewed data, if a cohort of 10 million individuals were vaccinated in the United Kingdom, 21.5 cases of Guillain-Barre and 5.75 cases of sudden death would be expected to occur within six weeks of vaccination as coincident background cases. In female vaccinees in the United States, you would expect 86.3 cases of optic neuritis per 10 million population within six weeks of vaccination. 397 per 1 million vaccinated pregnant women would be predicted to have a spontaneous abortion within one day of vaccination. End quote. Random badness happens, and it takes immense and for some impossible effort of will to ignore what appears to be an association. Take as another example death. People die. People get the vaccine. A hefty segment of those who get the vaccine are at risk for dying of their underlying cause. So you would predict if you were to give out the flu vaccine that there would be a cluster of people who would die shortly after receiving the vaccine, but not due to the vaccine, as if anyone would be convinced otherwise. Quote, in October 2006, four deaths occurred in Israel shortly after influenza immunization, resulting in a temporary halt to the vaccination campaign. After an epidemiologic investigation, the Ministry of Health concluded those deaths were not related to the vaccine itself, and the vaccine campaign resumed. However, vaccine uptake was markedly reduced, end quote. Yet I know, and you know, that any event after a vaccine will be credited to the vaccine. Even, as with death, the preponderance of the data points to the influenza vaccine actually decreasing short-term and long-term mortality. It was better back in the day. As a grumpy old fart who thinks that medical training was better back in my day, I have one piece of data in support of that association. An abstract at IDSA and reported in Medscape suggests, quote, that more recent graduates were 15% less likely than older graduates to believe that vaccines are effective. The younger graduates were also less likely to believe that inactivated oral polio, measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella vaccines are safe, end quote. Great. I suppose my initial hypothesis was wrong. Having access to the world's literature and the best minds in medicine is evidently not so conducive to understanding the benefits of vaccine. However, given the other nonsense that's currently taught in medical schools, like acupuncture and naturopathy and energy healing, and are given the patina of respectability, really... What can I expect? And so ends the 78th Quackcast. Again, to quote Mr. Deity, I'd like to say thank you, 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 thank you for voting for the Quackcast for Best Health and Fitness 
podcast. I won again three times in a row. As I said in the last podcast, go me. And as always, don't forget to go on to iTunes and write me glowing reviews of my podcasts. My ravenous yet feeble ego demands it. Otherwise, I will see you next time for the next Quackcast. Bye-bye, guys.